God is faithful, isn't he, church? He is. He was faithful in a tornado. He's been faithful through 2020. He's going to keep being faithful. So we need to stay faithful to him. And he has so much for us at this church, I believe it. I'm so excited about the future of ABC. I really am. If you have a Bible, you can go and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 15. Today, we are finishing a series, uh, speaking of resurrection, we're talking about the resurrection of a church building. We're talking about the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, In this series here in the month of April, considering the resurrection of Christ and also the resurrection of believers and and why it's so incredible. And in many ways, this has been like the anti-YOLO series that we're doing here, that you only, you don't just live once, you live forever. And we've been looking at that in 1 Corinthians 15, thinking about why limit the resurrection to Easter, but let's look at it for the whole month of April. So today we're finishing chapter 15, looking at verses 50 through 58. Uh, But in this chapter, uh, we've been really talking about this reality of the resurrection. But you can't talk about resurrection without also um, acknowledging the reality of death. And in many ways, even over the past few weeks, and especially this year, we've had to embrace or face the reality of death. I mean, just recently, we reached a milestone of 3 million people in the world who have passed away from COVID. This past week was the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Uh, There was the death of Prince Philip in his funeral recently. And then even today, as we remember the tornado and the dozens of people that lost their lives in that storm, we're faced with the reality of death as we talk about the reality of resurrection today. But J.D. Greer, in one of his books called What Are You Doing or What Are You Gonna Do With Your Life? talks about this illustration that the philosopher Blaise Pascal once used. Pascal said it this way. He said that life is like a giant party. It's full of happy people, loud music, and dancing. When unexpectedly, a monster suddenly appears in the room, grabs a random person, mauls them in front of everybody and drags their body out of the room. And in the midst of that, everyone watches in horror. They they stare at each other for a second, not really sure what to say, what to do. But then the music kicks back up, the band kicks back in, everybody starts to party again. They kind of just go about the party. And this repeats itself every few minutes until it's apparent that this monster is eventually gonna come for everybody but yet the party just goes on. And in many ways for us, no matter how much we try to ignore it, death is this reality that we all have to face. It's this shadow that is cast over our lives. And in many ways, it's the one enemy that we truly can't escape, we truly can't defeat. But in our passage today, we're gonna see that the apostle Paul is gonna show us that we can have victory over death. And it's because Christ Jesus himself has defeated death for us and we have victory in his name. We have victory in the gospel of Jesus. So we're gonna look at this today. So if you'll read with me 1 Corinthians 15, we're gonna read verses 50 through 58 there to the end of the chapter, and then we will go from there. This is the word of the Lord. It says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible text. Lord, I feel like I could just read that and walk off the stage and we'd hear an incredible word from you today. But Lord, guide us as we seek to understand the incredible implications this has for us as followers of Christ and for really anyone in this room that would put their faith in Jesus, that we can have victory over death, that we can rejoice even in the midst of death, Lord, knowing that, that we will rise, that there is eternal life in front of us, that Christ has opened wide the doors to eternity that we can walk in if we simply put our faith in him. May we celebrate that. May we rejoice in it. May we embrace the kind of perspective in life we should live in light of it. Pray in Christ's name, amen. Three things we're gonna see today as we talk about rejoicing in the resurrection, which by the way, you probably didn't notice it, but me and Jared worked hard that all these messages started with an R (laughs) for this. Rejoicing, we had rising, we had uh, the reality in the, Something. They all started with R, so we were really hard for that. So you're welcome, okay? So, but today, as we talk about rejoicing in the resurrection, three things we're gonna talk about. We're gonna look at how first, we will be changed. Second, we are victorious. And thirdly, we gotta get to work. We need to get to work. So let's first talk about how we will be changed. We see this in verses 50 through 53 of this text. Notice how Paul starts off this section saying, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what does he mean by that? Because it seems a little bit odd. Without context, that statement seems to kind of contradict everything he said so far in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Because the Corinthians were being led to believe that there was no resurrection of the dead. They were being deceived in that way. But Paul's whole point in this chapter has been the dead are raised. And because Christ has been raised, it guarantees the resurrection of believers. So we've seen that. But when Paul says the kingdom of God, he's talking about the fully realized kingdom that Christ is gonna instate when he comes again one day. He's talking about the new heaven and new earth. He's talking about eternity here where we'll spend time with eternity with God. So when Paul says flesh and blood, he can't mean just like our bodies in general, like our general physical bodies, because that's exactly what he's been arguing here with the resurrection, that our physical bodies will indeed be resurrected and they will exist in eternity. We won't just be disembodied souls that exist forever with the Lord. So flesh and blood then can't just mean physical bodies in general. So what does Paul mean? Well, I'd say instead what Paul's talking about here is our physical bodies as they currently exist, that they are right now subject to weakness, decay, and death. And brokenness. In many ways, Paul is kind of wrapping up his conversation he was having in the last section, talking about what our glorified, resurrected bodies will look like. But our bodies, as they are right now, and if you're getting older, you definitely recognize this, our bodies are breaking down. They are perishable. That I feel cutting the grass on Saturday way more than I should these days um, as a 33-year-old, that our bodies are slowly dying, right? But to exist forever in the new creation, our bodies can't exist that way. They can't be perishable. They have to be imperishable. They gotta be free from the corruption that exists because of sin. And that's why in verse 53, Paul would say, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. That this mortal body must put on immortality. Because when Christ returns and destroys sin and destroys death, our bodies, they gotta be fit for that new reality. And so that's what's gonna happen when he glorifies our body and removes any trace of weakness, any trace of decay, any trace of death, none of that. He glorifies our bodies that we will have a body similar to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in some way. And then Paul doesn't give a lot of detail about this, but he does give us an idea of, of when this will happen and in some ways how it happens. And he says it's on the day when Christ comes again. 
It'll happen, like he says, in a moment, in the twinkling or the blink of an eye when a a trumpet sounds and Christ appears in the sky. And Paul gives more elaboration on this in 1 Thessalonians 4. I wanna read this for us. It gives us a a little bit more idea what he's talking about. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, going to verse 18, Paul says this. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have already died. He says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So without getting too much into the idea of a rapture here, we see this incredible picture of our future hope as Christians, that one day Christ is going to return again. He's gonna raise to life all the Christians that have already believed in him, give them perfect glorified bodies. And then he's gonna call all believers to himself in the air. And in that moment, those Christians who are still alive at that time will be changed and they will receive glorified, perfected bodies as well. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're gonna then be whisked away into heaven, taken away to eternity in the clouds. Like if you study the language of this text in the Greek, you're gonna find that word to meet the Lord in the air is the Greek word apentasis, which is a random word, but it's a unique thing in Greek because in Greco-Roman culture, that word was used to describe how royalty, when they entered into a city, how they were received by the people that were there. If a royal person or like a king, something like that were to enter into a city, many times the people in the city would actually come outside of the city. They would meet that royalty outside the city there and have a celebration. Then they would all enter the city again together as a kind of royal procession to come back into the town. And so I think Paul uses that word apentasis for a reason here because I don't think it's wrong to believe that when Christ comes again, that all believers will be transformed, that will be gathered to him in the air, but then we will descend back again with him to the earth for then Christ to initiate the last judgment and to begin the new heaven and the new earth, where we will then dwell forever on a redeemed, restored new heaven, new earth, a redeemed globe, a redeemed earth. I think we have a lot of reason to believe that here, but regardless of all the details and where we fall on that, Paul's hope or Paul's point here is to give us hope. It's to give us incredible hope as Christians. Because like Jared talked about last week in his message about the resurrection body, the resurrection doesn't just give us hope for eternity with the Lord. As amazing as that is, and that would be enough as it is, but God gives us, he lets us have our cake and eat it too (laughs) in many ways that we don't only spend eternity in his presence, but it's also hope for a redeemed and renewed body, a perfected glorified body free from the brokenness of sin and decay, which gives us hope. All of us who are feeling the burden and brokenness of sin in our bodies, It gives us incredible hope, whether that's physical pain, whether that's disease, addiction, whether that's emotional trauma, that we all can know if we're in Christ that we have the hope that we may have pain in this life, but all will be made new, including us, including our very bodies will be made new to live with the Lord. That's an incredible hope. That's the first thing we see that we will be changed. But the second thing we see 
is that we are victorious in verses 54 through 57. Paul gives probably some of the most powerful and famous words, at least about death in any of his letters, when he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul spent so much time in chapter 15 unpacking all this dense theology about the resurrection and what it means for us. But at this point, he just wants you to get pumped. He just wants you to understand he's taunting death as he thinks about death having no victory over us at this point. He's aiming for our hearts. And this stanza here that he even quotes is a combination of two Old Testament prophets. It's a combination of Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13. We won't read those because you kind of get the idea from how he uses it. But what Paul's doing here is he's pulling from the prophets to show us that God's plan has always been to destroy death. It's always been to eradicate it. But that plan in many ways is way better than we even could imagine. It's way better than even the Old Testament saints could imagine. That it wasn't just an end to death, but it was also a beginning of physical resurrection with the Lord. And up until now, Paul's been addressing a lot of intellectual questions, but at this point, he's aiming for our hearts. He wants us just to rejoice in this reality of the resurrection, this victory we have in the resurrection. But then in in verses 56 and 57, there's kind of a random aside Paul jumps into. He kind of throws in this idea of the sting of death or the sting of sin being death and and the power of sin being the law. And it kind of seems out of of nowhere. But what Paul's doing there is in verses 56 and 57, he's giving us really like a tweetable version of his whole theology of the law, sin, and death from the book of Romans. You gotta go read the whole book of Romans to really kind of get the whole context. We won't do that today. Um, But to give you kind of an overview, what he's saying here is this. He's saying that when Adam and Eve first rebelled against God, that sin entered the world and it broke all of creation, including humanity. And then when that happened, it was like humanity was stung by some kind of deadly insect, that we were stung with a deadly poison that began to then slowly work its way out in us, that Adam and Eve didn't immediately physically die when they rebelled against God, but they were immediately spiritually separated from God by sin and so that every person after them would also be spiritually separated from God. But that poisonous sting of sin would mean they would eventually die, no matter what the serpent said, he was lying. But not only did that sin lead to spiritual and physical death, but also sin is led to where it now has power over us. That sin has power over us. We're now, as Paul would say in Romans, a slave to sin, to where we're now powerless to really live the way that God has designed us to live. That yeah, we can do some good things, but in the end, our hearts are corrupted. That at our very core, even the good we do is stained with self-interest and it's stained with pride. That sin is our nature. That we don't just occasionally sin sometimes now, but our very orientation in life is to rebel against God and to sin against him. It's to live in opposition to him. And that's why Paul says the power of sin is the law. Because the law is good, but when God gave humanity his law, it really did two things. It first made sin clearly observable as sin, to where we have great definitions of what it means to disobey God, but also it demonstrated that our actions aren't just breaking arbitrary laws that God made, but it's really a violation of God's laws he instated for our good, that it's a violation and a rejection of a holy God, which means that we now all stand condemned as lawbreakers because of the law, that even though the law is a good gift from God, it functions as the power of sin because it leads us to either feel prideful because we think we're deceived into thinking that we are doing good enough with God's law. We're kind of doing well enough obeying it. Or it just reveals that we're broken, we're jacked up and we're hopeless and we can't obey it. 
on our own. So in either way, apart from Jesus and apart from his work, the law only leads to death. It only leads to death, not life. And so when Paul says this phrase, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, what he's doing is he's describing the broken human experience due to sin and death in this world. That we're powerless to stop death and we're powerless to stop sinning. That we're trapped. We're trapped in this despair and this hopelessness. But thanks be to God who gives us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ that he lived and died in our place so that even though we may die, we can one day know if we're in Christ that we will rise again and live with him. We can know that through the spirit applying Christ's work to our lives, that we can be set free from the power of sin and no longer be a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness, as Paul would say. That yeah, we still will struggle with sin, but it will have no power over us. That sin will still call, but we don't have to answer the phone. (laughs) That we can say no, that we have freedom over it. So while in reality, Paul is celebrating this, there is a hard thing we gotta think about though, is that Paul can say, yeah, death, where's your victory? You know, death, where's your sting? But any person that's ever been to a funeral has felt the sting of death. We, we felt the grief, right? Theologically, we can say, yes, that Jesus has defeated death for us. But when we're faced with the death of someone that we love, that grief in many ways can feel like death has the final word. And that's something that we have to wrestle with. And as Christians, we don't deny the reality of the pain of death. We don't let the resurrection make us think like we're spiritual hallmark cards that just never think that life is hard. Life is hard. Death is terrible. Jesus himself wept in front of the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus, his friend who had just died. And Jesus knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but yet he still wept in the face of death. It broke his heart. But it's exactly because death is so dark that we can have such eternal confidence. In Christ, we don't grieve as if death is just the end, but we grieve as those who know that death is the doorway to resurrection life, that death is in many ways just a door opening for us to enter into eternity with Christ and into the resurrection. I love the way that Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I love the way C.S. Lewis in his uh, fiction book or novel, The Great Divorce, kind of paraphrases this through one of his characters. He says this, he says, son, he said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. That's what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Even in our grief, our grief in the face of death, one of the hardest things, we can have hope knowing that in the midst of this, God's gonna transform even the pain and agony of grief over death into a glory that will all be worth it in eternity. We have hope. We have hope even in the midst of the tragedy of death. That death sometimes may seem like it has the final word, like it has the victory, but nothing could be farther from the truth. It's like Paul's famous words in Romans 8, 37, when Paul says, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death itself can separate us from the love of God. Not even death itself. 
So we have reason to rejoice. We have reason to have hope. But also, as we see here in verse 58, we got reason to get to work. We got reason to get to work. Because at the end of chapter 15, Paul gives this incredible but so short application of all that he said. The other 57 verses, 58 is like the application verse of this idea of the resurrection. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Basically here, Paul says that if death, which is our greatest enemy, has been defeated and eternity with God is wide open to us, then we got work to do. We got a work to do because those words steadfast and immovable there gives this idea, if you study the original words, it's like being seated so securely, you can't be moved. It's like you're bolted down in your hope. You're that secure in what you believe. And, and Paul specifically is talking about the Corinthians and how they are being tempted to not believe in the resurrection and be tempted to believe some other false things about eternity. So he wants them to be bolted down in their belief that the resurrection is true. There is a resurrection of the dead. But it's also true for us that if we're gonna live a life that makes an impact for eternity, we gotta be rock solid in our confidence that this life is not all there is, but there is a resurrection. There is an eternity at stake that we need to be living for. And then that phrase to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, it's pretty self-explanatory. But the idea there is that we have a life overflowing with the fruit of living, not just for the present, but for eternity. And how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us right here at the end, we gotta remember that our work, our lives are not in vain. This is the way we keep ourselves steadfast and immovable and abounding in work. We gotta focus on how eternity is before us. We gotta keep our focus on eternity that our work is not for nothing, but it's for an eternal kingdom. Because if you think about it, there's only one thing you will not be able to do in heaven. You know what the one thing you can't do in heaven is? Besides sin, I guess. <laughs> is you can't tell a lost person about Jesus in heaven. The one thing you can't do in heaven, you won't be able to tell a lost person about Jesus. So if Christians are gonna live forever in a restored and perfected new creation, if the best for us is yet to come, then our job right now is to make Jesus known to every person we can on this earth. It's like C.T. Studd said in that, a uh, very familiar quote to many people. He said, only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. Are we living for things that are gonna last? Moses in Psalm 90 verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Martin Luther kind of commenting on that said it this way. He said, teach us to reflect on the fact that we must die so that we may become wise. That we all will face death and it's only when we remember the reality of how short life is and how long eternity is that we can then live wisely and we can make our lives count for what matters instead of wasting it. If we're gonna live wisely, we've gotta stop binging on the junk food of the distractions of just the things that keep us focused on today and only today and instead start developing a better appetite for eternity. Because as we have a better appetite and a better longing for eternity with the Lord, it's gonna radically change the way that we live today. We won't just not care about today, but we're gonna care a lot more about it because of what's coming in the future. And I love the way that C.S. Lewis, I'm gonna see C.S. Lewis kick again today, y'all, I'm sorry. But I love the way that Lewis does this when he depicts the beginning of eternity in his series, The Chronicles of Narnia. I'm giving you the fiction books today, not the nonfiction from last time, okay? But in the last battle, which is the last book of the series of Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, who really is the representative picture of Jesus in the story, he says to his children, as they kind of begin their version of eternity, he says, further up and further in. And this is the way they respond. 
They say, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. And then Lewis concludes, he says, all their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If we get a hold of that kind of glimpse of eternity, that it's our true home, it's what you're longing for, whether you know it or not, then we can overflow in the work of the Lord. When we have that kind of appetite and longing for eternity, we can forget the bucket list, right? We have eternity to live and enjoy the new creation. <laughs> like forget the bucket list. Like, we got work to do because we wanna see everyone we can come to join us in the new creation, to know the Lord and to be there with him forever. And that's what Paul is calling us to do. That's what we're called to do today. So as we close, I want us to consider the words of Jesus to Martha when she was grieving over the death of Lazarus. It's in John 11, famous text. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who's coming into the world. But here's the thing, all of us like Martha have to answer that question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? That if you put your faith in him, though you die, you will live in eternity with him. Do you believe it? If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I, I beg you today to put your faith in Christ. Receive the gift of eternal life with him. Receive it. His arms are open wide to you. I'd love to talk to you more about that. I'll be down front when we sing this last song. I'd love to talk to you and pray with you. But if you're a Christian here, are you living in light of that eternal hope? Are you living in light of that? Now, I'll, I'll never forget the moment I saw this the most clearly. It was actually at the, the funeral of Bruce Mills years ago when Jennifer's husband, Bruce, passed away and we were here for the funeral in this room. I had the honor of leading a couple of songs during the service. And we got to the last song and it was 10,000 Reasons. And we got to that last verse where it says, and on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years in them forevermore. And as we sang that last Last verse, Bruce's mom came up to the front and she was right here and she puts her hand on Bruce's casket and she puts the other hand in the air and just sings praises to Jesus. And in that moment, I, I've never believed the gospel was more true than in that moment. Never believed the gospel was more true. I'm like, how can you do this? How can you put the hand on the casket of your dead son and put one hand in the air and sing to the Lord if not that the resurrection is true? If not that he will rise, that we will rise in Christ. If not, that is true. That's what resurrection hope is all about. And that's why we gotta get to work. So let's not waste our lives living for lesser things. Don't waste your life on the distractions of today. Live for the resurrection, live for eternity. Make your life count. It's short, it's all we have. Make it count. 
Let's be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain, church. Let's pray. Father, we love you. But we can't put into words the life-changing power of the resurrected Jesus. That if Jesus is alive, that anything is possible, that eternity is wide open to us, that you have defeated the greatest enemy that we can never defeat on our own, that we are powerless against. Or maybe feel the weight of that today. Or may it compel us to look at our lives and ask, what are we wasting our lives on? To ask, what things do we need to change? To ask, have we put our faith in this Jesus? Have we put our hope in him? Have we turned from our sin and trusted in Christ? Lord, may the weight of this weigh heavy on us today for your glory that you may do great things in us and through us because of it. Lord, may we be people that live not for today, but live in light of eternity to make an eternal impact in this community, in this city, this state, and in the world for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.